My name is Kermity Frog. Oh, Kermy. My name is Kermity Frog. Oh, Kermy. Pretentious. Mwah. Welcome to episode 26, isn't it? 26? I think so. Yeah, yeah, 26. 26 of the world-famous Touchboard Zoology Podcasts. G'day, my name's John Conway. <laughs> and I'm Godzilla. <laughs> and this in this episode, we will not be talking about Godzilla, because John hasn't seen it yet. Well, yeah, <sighs> but that gives everyone a chance to see it. I'm seeing it on Tuesday, but apparently Darren's going to be too busy with his kids or some like crazy excuse like that. <laughs> uh, I really wanted to talk about Godzilla. So sorry to all our listeners for John's slackness. But, um, okay. Uh, agenda. I haven't got the agenda in front of me. But <laughs> oh, there's, there's a Christ. So, <laughs> F you, just... Darren. F you. Okay. Two minute rule is in effect, so keep an eye on the clock there. Uh, the Mike Kesey's patented Tetsu drinking game is in effect as well. Uh, so first thing on the agenda is uh, FU. <laughs> FU, FU slash uh, Cow and Kesey Corner slash <laughs> Dumbass Darren. I'd like to combine everything if I may. Um, so... Do you remember a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the domestication of dogs, or dogs in general, or was it brain size? I actually can't remember. Something to do with dogs and brain size. Yeah. And I think, yeah. maybe it was the spin-off of the dingo thing, the new dingo paper that was in General Zoology. And I said quickly that um, domestic dogs have got proportionally smaller brains than wolves. And you went, surely not. How can this be so? Well, do you remember that? Ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't remember my response, but yeah. It's your, it's your coke habit destroys your brain. Mm. Um, Marcus Buller, longtime Tetsu supporter and listener of the podcast, uh, who knows dogs very well, <laughs> says um, that, yeah, what I said is 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 true. The domestic dogs do, do ha indeed have proportionally smaller brains than wolves for like mid-sized and large breeds. But interestingly or perhaps not interestingly, perhaps it's not surprising at all, small dogs have proportionally enormous brains among the largest brains of mammals. So there you go, that's a thing. That's interesting, because they're not that intelligent, are they? Well, there's this whole issue that we're not going to talk about now about, you know, what does brain size actually tell you about intelligence? Because some, some animals with proportionally enormous brains are not particularly, in quotes, intelligent. And some animals that do seem reasonably, in quotes, intelligent have proportionally small brains. So um, there's all kinds of other factors that you've got to put into play. And that, I don't want to talk about that because it mostly involves fish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't if you hadn't read anything about fish, Darren. <laughs> do you, you went the, wrong. The biggest brained, uh, biggest brained vertebrates are fish. They're not humans. They've got bigger brains. There's, there's a bunch of fish that have got bigger brains than people. Proportionally got, bigger brain. Proportionally bigger brain, yeah. It's, it, it, um, the, um, uh, uh, the, uh, no, no, I don't want to talk about... No, no fish. No fish. Okay, yeah. <sighs> okay. Um, um, we had a... Inspired by a question from Irene Dels, rhymes with else, uh, the the whole um, 
non-mammalian synapsids thing, and I said, oh, there's, there's no there's no catch-all term for these animals. We've got to make up a new one. Let's call them. What did you want to? Well, call whatever. Proto mammals, para mammals. Keezy says, duh. Of course, there's a of course there's a catch-all term. Stem mammals. Stem He's kind of right. He's right. Stem mammals, but um, 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 I just. It's okay. I just don't. I just don't really like. I, I'm quite happy with the crown and stem conventions, but I'm not sure that I'm happy with referring to a group. I don't know. If we're going to come up with a term that we've got to use in conversation, then fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Stem mammals. But I can't help myself but saying non-mammalian synapsids. Just rolls off the tongue so much easier. <laughs> Such a poetic, beautiful term. <laughs> non-mammalian synapsids. It's as good as non-avian dinosaurs. Yes, yes. Oh, which God, is which those is, things are horrible. Yeah, which uh, non non avian dinosaurs is, is is problematic because the diff, because of the fact that we have these annoying because of the fact that people use the terms aves and aviolae differently. Yep. And with with obviously some people that use aves for the entire bird clade don't they don't use some of those don't use aviolae at all. Mm. But that means that there's now when you say non avian theropod or non-avian dinosaur are you including the avialeans that are not avians according to some people it's like le again let's not go down this route because there's a whole annoying terminological mess but um it's, it's yeah I, I i've now taken to saying non-avialean theropods <laughs> oh that's so much better darren <laughs> non-avialean dinosaurs <laughs> yeah well i'm yeah, glad well. you cleared that up for everybody yeah. dinosaurs that aren't birds can we fit it can we jam in any more syllables do you think can we make it somewhat more awkward? <laughs> um, I screwed up massively in the discussion that we were having about non-mammalian synapsids, stem mammals, or paramammals, or proto-mammals, because mm. uh, I was talking about um, uh, a cone-headed dinocephalian, and I said it was Staracocephalus, and Staracocephalus is a thick-skulled dinocephalian with a kind of long face, um, but it uh, it's got like yeah it's got like a big dome skull and it's got some weird kind of like um sort of laterally projecting bony bosses at the back of the skull but the cone-headed one the one with the sort of big triangular stupid sword thing is struthiocephalus which is another kind of dinosaurian hmm. listening back to the coverage of non-mammalian synapsids that we gave i also kind of i'm never happy with any of the, the the answers to questions that we slash I provide. But um, I was, I, I just, it's the same as when we did that plesiosaur thing back in what, episode two or whatever. It's like, it just feels like a big mess with no, with it being difficult for people to kind of get a clear view of what the actual, you know, when you're talking about a huge group with loads of lineages, very few people are going to want or need to take away the names of all. 50 key lineages they you just give them a just give them a simple cladogram with like you know five things on it so yeah. i want people to draw a little cladogram in front of you now that's all synapsids okay so varanopids ophiacodontids edaphosaurids sphenacodontids those are lineages that are branching off like early on in the history of this clade those are the animals those are the synapsids that conventionally are grouped together as the pelicosaurs because they're the ones that look those are the ones that look more sort of reptilian then from um, a lineage close to Sphenacodontids, you've got this major group of synapsids called the therapsids. And then in th therapsids, the lineages branch off in the following order. So we're going up towards the crown, the crown being mammals. The Armasuchians, 
then anomodonts, which includes dicynodonts, then dinocephalians, or the relationships among some of these lineages are uncertain. So in some cladograms, you've got anomodonts branching off before dinocephalians, in others vice versa. Right, so we're horribly then, confused already. Right, then you get into <laughs> then you get into theriodonts, which is a big clade that includes gorgonopsians, therocephalians, and cynodonts. So gorgonopsians, big short-tailed pseudo-saber-toothed predators, therocephalians, kind of similar but more robust skulls and generally smaller body size, and cynodonts, which are the um, especially short-tailed, semi-erect-limbed, uh, sometimes furry uh, proto-mammals and mammals. So, so that I, includes mammals? So cynodonts includes mammals. Yeah, so, so there you go. It's fairly simple, isn't it? So, so if people that listened to the last episode, the long rambling all over the place mess. I think I said in it at one point that I should have a cladogram in front of me just so I can, you know, explain yeah. it better. Yeah, but I think in some ways it didn't really matter because a lot of the discussion was about their, um, well, what they looked like and what they did, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we had a, a vague notion of where, where some of them fitted on the cladogram. I mean, yeah, I agree. There was... <laughs> There's no way anyone could, but no one can hold that in their head. Although it is actually a fairly simple cladogram, I did draw it along with you. Show me, show me. I want to see it. Well, I didn't write anything down, but it's, ah. uh, you know, it was a uh -huh. it was a comb, yeah, right? That's great. That's it. That's it. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah classic Anigian comb. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you're never going to get across like uh, the phylogenetics of an, a large unfamiliar group in a podcast you're just not that's a good quote we should use that <laughs> that should be our tagline <laughs> tells you the podcast quote you never got to get the text just said, you know? <laughs> give people a good idea of what they're uh, uh getting into um i'm sure there's there's doubtless more corrections and things that i should cover but um news from the world of john and darren so uh, where should we start? Well, we probably shouldn't have spent half an hour talking about Tetsukon before the episode because now I don't know what we've said and we, we did have we should... to. Yeah, we did have to. Okay, so Tetsukon is happening. The venue is booked. Um, the page is up, um, which is tetsu.com/convention. Um, we've sold about a third of the tickets. Yep. So go and you book your tickets if you haven't. Space is limited, so mm. yeah, it's limited to we we can sell um seventy tickets overall. So yeah, <clears throat> yes, Did a yes. A uh, list of speakers is on the site, and we have got virtually all um, titles. We collect, we're getting abstracts of people as well, which we're gonna. So we're gonna have a little flyer at the meeting, but um, so we've got like a timetable and list of speakers, and we're gonna put that online sometime over the next couple of days. Well, it'll probably be by the time you're listening, it's probably online. I don't know. But, um, so talks on. I'm doing speculative zoology. Mark Witten's doing pterosaurs. Mike Taylor's doing dinosaurs. Carol Jamie's doing primates of primatology. Um, Helen Meredith is doing uh, herpetology. Paleo art workshop. We have got Neil Phillips doing wildlife photography. And that's a couple of other things, but that's mostly it. Oh, a hilarious quiz, which I'm putting together in my spare time. Just having good fun with that. Oh, there's a prize and, for the quiz, isn't there? Uh, it's going to be a whole buttload of prizes. Cool. It's going to be like 
there's going to be like four or five prizes. So I don't want to commit to anything of any of those things now because they're not confirmed. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we've got some good prizes. Yeah, so some um, good prizes. I saw some of those prizes. They're pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so Tetsukon is uh, yeah, it's it's coming along, and uh, thank you to people who've booked and yeah. Um, so uh, this Science Uncovered magazine. Science Uncovered magazine, which I write for. Yeah. And uh, I don't suppose you've this is this is on sale if you live in the UK. This is on sale in shops now. Oh. Yeah. And uh, can you see John? See this little. That's a yeah, dinosaur yeah. thing. Dinosaurs transformed. <laughs> Forget what you thought they knew about. It's not about Dinobots. Uh, have you seen the new oh. Transformers Age of Extinction trailer? What? No, really? <laughs> yeah. You haven't seen it. That's amazing. Check it out. <laughs> no, you are joking, aren't you? You are. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. This is all everyone's talking about. Dinobots. <sighs> We need a new army. Um, then, then you see, see. This is why I don't read anything on the internet. Uh, <laughs> flame-breathing uh, Grimlock, that ridden by Optimus Prime. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, oh, I thought they were jokes on Tumblr. I didn't think that was a real thing. It's <laughs> oh, a real thing. Oh my god, it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we've gone off tangent here, John. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this new uh, science uncovered um, thing. It's an article by me called "Rediscovering the Dinosaurs." They are often depicted as huge, scaly beasts, but new discoveries are changing our beliefs about these creatures that once stalked our planet. I didn't write that line, obviously, but um, yes. Yeah, so we've got what, what what I do in this article is I have like a um, the sort of mainstream view of a given dinosaur, and mainstream. They're, these pictures are inaccurate now. They're out of date, but they were. Some of them are still being used. I mean, some of them were produced as recently. They were produced as recently as 2001. This is what I find unbelievable. So that look, John, look, mm, look, yes. look at the Velociraptor. <laughs> yeah. That Velociraptor was was classic naked bunny hands Velociraptor as well. Bunny hands, Jurassic Park. Bipedal Komodo dragon kind of Velociraptor. That was done in 2001. So we've got like the old school silly thing, and then we've got the new one. So there's two pictures of yours in here. There's, and also it's also illustrations by Emily Willoughby, Julia Satonyi, and Mark Witten. So I'm quite pleased with this article. Uh, I'm quite pleased that I managed to get, you know, Work by okay. all these people are my friends, but the the people that um are, you know whose whose work you know I rate, I, I, whose work I want to see in this article, because I've done articles before when they the the artists they get to do it you know don't seem to have ever looked at a dinosaur or even know what an animal is. That's the kind of expertise you're <laughs> you're dealing with. So uh, yeah, yeah. So but but right. So that Ooh. that is an article specifically about the life appearance of dinosaurs. And yeah, also, what's the name of the magazine again science uncovered uh discover the world around you it says and uh, it's the june uh 2014 uh issue and that could be seen as kind of like the prototype for a book project that that you and i are having the works right yep mm. as soon as we get that video done ah uh, yeah that video. well I'll, I'll come up to london soon and we'll finish it then yeah. 
Now, uh, look at this. <laughs> Darren, show me. I'm your show and tell on a podcast. <laughs> okay, for the benefit for the benefit of listeners instead of seers, listen to this, everyone. <laughs> that sounded pathetic, Darren. It looks a lot more look impressive than that sounded. Three hundred fifty-eight yeah. pages. Yeah, it's about like I'd say what two inches high. What the hell's an inch? I don't know. It's uh, five centimeters high. Yeah, five centimeters. <laughs> You're measuring a... it in fingers, aren't you, Darren? <laughs> well, that's because <laughs> four fingers high. <laughs> read, look, read the title. The vertebrate fossil record, Darren Nash. Yeah, so that's uh, this is the manuscript. Yes, the vertebrate fossil record. But um, well, there's a lot to go before it's. Fish. That's like, yeah. How many? So, how many? How many fingers of fish there, Darren? Watch this. Watch this. Okay, look. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. All right. Uh, that's colostiids or cheeriids. Here we go. Tetrapoda versus stegocephali. Uh, right. Okay. So that there, yeah. that's tetrapods. Yeah. That there is non-tetrapods. And that, but this, bear in mind, I've still got to do chondrichthians and sarcopterygians. It's not mostly fish, but it's nearly it all. It is fish. mostly fish there. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Mostly fish. fish. Non fish. Oh, yeah. No, okay. fish it's about even, isn't it, actually? I thought there'd be more fish, to be honest. So it's about two fingers of fish. Two fish fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a major project, which is there's still months and months of work. Uh, to go on it. It's the book that I've always wanted. I've always wanted uh, such a book to exist, and it doesn't, and it will. Um, so, people that like my stuff will like it. People that don't like my stuff won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. But, um, so, anything, anything else from the world of John and Darren that you want to talk about? Mainly from the world of John, seeing as you're uh, no, John. No, 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 nothing. No new, nothing. You've done anything? You well, I've done many any... things, but it's all secret. Secrets. Yep. Oh, yeah. I've, I'm working on some secret stuff as well. Just did the finishing touches yesterday to a top tier Glamour Mag publication, which, uh, yeah, yes, oh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> and it it come it it fits into like a a body of work that's um oh, lots of people are working on this <laughs> at the moment. Did I ever tell you about Shirley Ghostman? No. <laughs> Have you ever? Oh, if anybody out there has ever, I seem to be the only person that ever watched Shirley Ghostman. Shirley Ghostman, I've forgotten the name he plays in, but he's a a spoof psychic. So he's a guy who was actually pretending to be a oh, psychic. Oh, you've told me yeah. about Shirley right. Ghostman. Shirley, yes. Right. Any, okay. Anybody, anybody that's interested in this, check out Shirley Ghostman. I thought it was hilarious. He had he had his own TV show where he pretended to be a psychic, and um, there's <laughs> so so like. Yeah, there's a bit where he's in a uh, an audience and he's at the front of the stage, and he's what what is it called? Cold calling, the thing psychics do. Um, and, no, uh, uh, cold reading. Cold reading. Cold, yeah, cold calling is when you phone someone up, isn't it? Um, yes. It, <laughs> and there's a bit where he's he's trying to flush flush a response out of the audience, and he says, "Now, is there anybody? I can feel the spirits talking to me. Is there anybody in the audience who's got any any stuff?" going on in their life right now right now <laughs> any stuff and you sort of see and bear in mind the audience think that he thinks he's a real psychic 
that you sort of see yeah. people like looking at each other <laughs> what the hell and then one woman finally puts her hand up yeah i've got some stuff going on he goes now this stuff does it involve does it involve uh things <laughs> that's sorry the, the, the vagueness of what the hell i'm talking about is so oh, this is this is the kind of secret stuff you're working on is it yeah can't talk shirley about ghostman fan show <laughs> no it's a top tier glamour <laughs> which will be hitting show. youtube before you know it it's going into a well-known uh ultra high impact factor paper that isn't nature journal that isn't nature and <laughs> guess what that is and and it's about a thing that a lot of people have yeah it's like quite a few people have latched onto this sort of trend that we've done something can't say anymore um, obviously got the yeah, ichthyosaur stuff and uh nearly ben moon and i just about done on our kimmage ichthyosaur revision um and uh yeah new as darked stuff pterosaurs going on um yeah should we move on <laughs> yes <laughs> Welcome to the next section of the show. <laughs> we, like, we like to call it News from the World of News. <laughs> I like this one much better than News from the World of John and Darren. Well. <laughs> Although, yeah. I guess to make the News from the World of News joke work, you need News from the World of John and Darren, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah. Or no, <laughs> not at all, but whatever. Well, no, but that. it helps. <laughs> news either, either from the World of news, then what's news? Well, the, first of all, new in the world of news. What's we'll start the new with news? The... Get a word in. Two minute rule, Darren. Shut up. Two minute rule. Two minute rule. Keep it together. Um, there's a new species of large living mammal has been discovered. It's a new species. No way. <laughs> no way. Yeah. No way. A tapir. It's called Tapirus cabamani. It's discovered by, well, it was published in the Journal of Mammalogy by Mario Coswell and colleagues. Um, and uh, it's present across how, part of northern how Brazil. How did this go undetected for so long? Well, this the funny thing is that tape here. it was probably, in fact, it turns out that a specimen was actually known, uh, probably collected as early as, I believe, 1912 by Teddy Roosevelt. And it's been sat in the collection to the American Museum of Natural History in New York ever since. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, quite big news. Does it look quite similar to other tapirs? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's very small. It's smaller than the other ones. It's the smallest tapir. <laughs> the smallest extant tapir, yeah. yeah. But I presume people thought that it was just uh, under, like a small uh, uh, representative of a known species? Well... This is sounding very familiar. Or maybe um, a juvenile? Well, I think that people knew that there was a range of variation within um, Tapirus terrestris, the Brazilian or lowland tapir, and they th and people would have seen these animals before and maybe thought they were a uh, like, you know, uh, a dwarf population or something. But um yeah, should we move on? Ratites. Ratites. So, uh, uh this this by the time you're hearing this, the, the Tetsu article will be out. I haven't finished it yet. But um, uh, today, which is the 23rd of May, um, uh, Mitchell et al. I don't have the paper in front of me, so I don't oh, remember the names, all the authors. But a new paper about the phylogeny of ratites and, well, 
ratites and or paleonaths because um, as is the case with now about f going on for five or six uh, molecular phylogenies, uh, all the recent ones find tinamous to be nested within ratites. So can, can, tinamous are flight capable. They look superficially like kind of tailless pheasants. They're present in uh, the, the Americas all the way from like southern Mexico down to southern Argentina. Did we talk about, have we covered paleonaths before? Uh, we did. You did talk about this before, but I think you can go on. Okay. We didn't do this, um, this one. Yeah. So, so the, the studies all find, rather than tinamous being the sister group to ratites, which is the conventional hypothesis based on like you know uh, morphological characters, uh, the studies all find tinamous to be deeply nested within ratites. So, technically, given that tinamous are not by definition ratites, this now means that ratites are paraphyletic. They don't include the group. Does not include all the you know uh, descendants of the common ancestor. Um, and but what does this mean for the polarity of what does this mean as goes like the evolution of flightlessness? Given that tinamous deeply nested within ratites are flight capable, does it mean that um, that tinamous come from a flightless ancestor like a ratite and they re-evolved a flight ability? That's not impossible, but it seems unlikely. Or does it mean that different ratites evolved their flightless capability like you know independently of one another? And that now seems more likely. The that's the background to this new study by Mitchell et al. in uh, Science. It reports um, the phylogenetic position of the Madagascan uh, elephant birds, the apionophids, because um, for the first time they've managed to extract some uh, mitochondrial DNA of uh, apionis and mulleronis, and they find apionophids to be the sister taxon to kiwi. Mm -hmm. Yeah? So mm -hmm. kiwi being endemic to unique to New Zealand uh, elephant birds apionophids being unique to Madagascar this is as explained in the paper that it's pretty much impossible to explain this as a relict of um, you know as a vicarious thing that, that is that the distribution of these animals does not match the idea that they were ancestrally flightless and walking around and hence got to where they were because for you yeah. to have a sister group relationship between those between apionothids and kiwi, well, their lineage would have to go back to <laughs> I don't know, the Jurassic or something. Plus, they're deeply nested within paleonaths. Um, they're not like a sister taxon to the rest of them. So, basically, it's new, very strong support for the idea that they got to where they were because they were flying over um, oceanic barriers. They were flying over the water. So. They got into, respectively, Madagascar and um, uh, New Zealand. Um, yeah, uh, they got in there after those regions had become isolated. The paper also suggests that the reason that some paleonaths have remained small body at uh, small at uh, small body size, like kiwi and tinamous, is because they got to the places where they are after other paleonath lineages had already gotten there and evolved large body size. So they propose that tinamou got to Tinamous got to the Americas after groups like Rias were already there and had evolved large body size. And in New Zealand, they're saying that Kiwi got to New Zealand after Moa had already gotten there and evolved large body size. So Kiwi, they're saying, Moas. yeah, you see what I see what I did there, and now and now it clearly didn't work because <laughs> oh, the, the lack of consistenciness. Um, <laughs> so so this will be covered on uh, on tetzu uh well probably as of right now but i haven't huh. finished 
Yeah, that's it's a sort of it's an interesting story, isn't it? That it's uh, it's also a bit frustrating in a way that it seems to be extraordinarily messy, like all these things, right? And we would not, so far as we can say at the moment, this ties back to what we were saying about mammal phylogeny and dinosaur phylogeny in the last episode. I don't think at the moment this may change in time because once we know what to look for, people do go and you know do targeted searches. But you couldn't say at the moment that you would look at kiwi anatomy and elephant bird anatomy and find characters that link them mm. on anatomical grounds. Uh, yeah. So that could just mean that they're understudied. I mean, what work has been done on elephant birds? Basically nothing. There's like a few yeah. ancient monographs. But there's, there's every, everyone who's tried to find out about these birds knows yeah. this. Have they been picked over in a large modern morphological analysis? I mean, yeah, that's what counts. Because oh, dinosaurs certainly have been, haven't they? I mean, this is partly... Maybe this is why we feel more confident about dinosaurs in many ways, because the morphological analyses done on dinosaurs are fairly extensive nowadays, aren't they? They're mm. top-class sort of um, things. So oh, although I suppose rig- you've only got um, bones to go on, but even so, you know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so that, so there's that. And there's as as is covered in the Tetsu article and in the previous one, which was published back in March, there's there's like four or five major things, major areas of controversy about ratite, well, paleonath evolution that make them a particularly interesting group. Um, kind of like a, all, the, all the kind of like cool areas that you might argue about in the evolution of, maybe not tetrapods in general, but certainly in the evolution of like, you know, birdie dinosaur things, all of them uh, come up in uh, discussions of ratite phylogeny like are they monophyletic or polyphyletic uh has their evolution been driven by competition with uh you know other groups like mammals tortoises um uh is their evolution was it dominated by pedomorphosis or paramorphosis or is none of that going on um um yeah lots about their biogeography and what what flightlessness yeah the whole flightlessness the and the as i just said the possible re-evolution of flight cable behavior um yeah interesting yeah. fact about moa that yeah. not enough people know they have no wings they have no wings at all so mm. i'm sure if most people were asked you know what do a, what do a ratite's wings look like okay ostriches got pretty big wings but kiwi and emus have got yeah. small ones moa no wings whatsoever they've lost every single bone um, they've lost the entire forelimb, and they even lack uh, a, a socket, a glenoid, on the scapular coracoid. So, um, so there are there are two-limbed birds. That means they're not tetrapods. <laughs> they're yes, they, they've evolved out of the clade, <laughs> as, as animals <laughs> That's do. Right, yes. I'm leaving this clade. <laughs> That's a joke. That's not how it works. I hope you know that. Um, yeah. So ratites, okay. <laughs> What else did it say? Uh, uh, Amazonian dromomericine. So I'm sure you're excited about this. You I heard about this. No. Let me let me find the paper just so I can do the authors justice and actually mention their names properly. Um, so you've heard of, I want to say muto. That's the wrong abbreviation. Um, Gino. No, that's the wrong. What's it called? The uh, the Great American Biotic Interchange. Gabby. Gabby. Great American Biotic Interchange. So 
the Panamanian Isthmus forms, meaning there's a terrestrial connection between North and South America, meaning that obviously animals from North America go South, animals from South America go North. This is known as the Gabi, the Great American Biotic Interchange. It is supposed to have occurred during the late Pliocene, so round about, I think, 3.5 million years ago is the kind of time span we're talking about. But for some time now, people have known that there are some animals in North America and South America whose appearance predates the completion of the land bridge. So sloths are South American, but there are a couple of sloths in North America in the Miocene. So mm-hmm. they got to North America before the land bridge formed. Um, and there's one or two other things as well. There's like peccaries in South America that appear to have kept peccaries around ancestry in North America. They appear to have got to South America, you know, maybe before the land bridge was complete. So this has led to all kinds of ideas as to was it possible some animals we know that, that crazy things can happen and we know that you know animals can literally swim across seaways of hundreds of kilometers um and things can you know these weird events where animals raft across whole oceans we know these things happen or we assume they must have happened given that there's no other explanation for them um but people have wondered you know does this mean that there was some little island hopping going on could animals like you know get from north to south or south to north before the language was completed because there were archipelagos where they could make short trips. Um, New paper led by Don Prothero, uh, also uh, co-authored by Ken Campbell, Brian Beattie, Carl Fraley. New late Miocene Dromomericene artiodactyl from the Amazon basin implications for interchange dynamics. So basically this paper describes a new Amazonian Dromomericene. Now Dromomericenes, they are superficially antelope-like hoofed mammals. And it's a group that's famous for one of these famous groups of extinct artiodactyls where there's kind of like stupid headgear, like crazy horns. So dromomericenes include like uh, craniocerus, which is one that's got like tall, long, spindly, um, superorbital horns, but then also has like a sickle-shaped curve thing growing out the back of its head. Uh, another famous one. Um, no. Not going to mention any other famous ones. Um, yeah, I'm just <laughs> okay <not>. then. <laughs> because, because I just don't want to. Screw uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they get enough attention already. <laughs> yeah. Lording, us, lording over us all. Droma Mericenes. So I think they're Droma, better than us. Yeah. <laughs> this new taxon is called Suramerix, Um from. Spanish, sir, you know, south, so Miocene from the south, um, and uh, and it's from the late Miocene in South America. Again, this is an ancestrally North American group, so this is another taxon that's showing good evidence for animals from the north getting to the south before the f- formation of the um, the, the the land bridge. So um, so basically, what they're so they're saying, you know, the gee whiz point, the take home point from their paper is that. That, that it wasn't just that one event that allowed animals to suddenly move north to south. There was stuff going on beforehand. There was dispersal going on um, prior to this. And, and they're saying, was it, was it like, you know, was it island hopping? Was it swimming? Well, they're saying... Uh, aliens. 
<laughs> right? Right? I've got it, haven't I? <laughs> They're saying that the that you know things were were Don Prothero. He's that guy with the crazy hair that's on all the Facebook memes, isn't he? Oh, it? don't. Oh, he would not like it if you said that because he, Don Prothero is a noted skeptic and obviously you know hates all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but so that's pretty funny. Yeah, you should run. I with think that. you got all my little joke there then. Huh? Yes. Oh, very okay. much. Yes, they're they're yeah. saying it's a. They're saying, if you'll let me go back to it, John. They're saying that yes, there was some permanent, semi-permanent terrestrial uh, connection. Uh, so, you know, during the late Miocene, around about five million yeah. years ago, and that uh, this changes everything, and that everything's now different. And uh, everything got, I knew is now wrong. Everything you knew is now wrong. We've got to like revise this kind of like textbook dogma. This, yeah. uh, this tired, um, harumph and amen kind of uh, uh, this crazy stuffy crazy, orthodoxy, man. stuffy orthodoxy, ivory tower scientists promoting their Gabby. Uh, we call them the Gabio, the Gabios. Um, Gabby, <laughs> Great American biotic interchange. The oh. whole idea that it happened. Ah, why are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good at acronyms. Um, that that is pretty interesting. Yes. So there was a. So their their argument essentially there was a previous land bridge. Yes. There was yeah. Basically, it was more complicated, more messy, and there was more stuff going on than we thought before. It wasn't tidy picture, and it's. Mm. You know, there's all these other things taken because they're saying that this they're saying that this terrestrial connection must have existed, but that it hasn't been clearly appreciated before because it was kind of intermittent. You know, rising sea levels meant that it wasn't there sometimes and it was there another time. And thing a thing about things like this thing is is always, <laughs> always that that we we obviously you know we always try in science to kind of think of like a tidy sensible thing, but if you're talking about we're talking about events that occurred over this is something that happened five million years ago, which isn't a long time ago, but we're talking about events that occurred over millions of years. And now just think of what would have happened in one of those millions of years. And now think about sea level changes when it comes down to the scale of millennia and even centuries and even decades. It's like a land bridge, you can understand, could be intermittent on the scale of certainly millennia and quite plausibly centuries, right? You know, there mm. could be a century where it was it was at sea level so animals could the same as animals will trot along in the surf you know they could they could have they could have moved along this but like you know 100 years later it was submerged under only has to be you know a few meters of water and animals aren't going to use it so yeah unless they're that, very long legged unless they're very long legged which which of course brings us back to swimming giraffes but um <laughs> yes indeed um <sighs> right shall we move on to uh uh, anything more to say in the <laughs> news from the world of news? Well, well, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, let's stop there. Let's stop there. But, but you, but us saying, talking about the making the jokes about hidebound orthodoxy, and I'm, I'm thinking of terms that I've read in Robert Backer's stuff. Yeah, uh, that's where the harumph and amen stuff. Because I've never, I've, I've never heard of anybody. Does anybody do that? When you put them with a heretic, when you give a, a, them her, a heretical idea, they say "harumph." I refuse to accept this, and then they see their old, um, you know, preferred options confirmed, and they say "amen," "harumph," and "amen." It's like, really? Do people do that? Maybe it's an American thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I see it all the time. All the time. All the time. <laughs> and of course, it reminds me of the I I made the mistake. I shouldn't say this. I mentioned this on Twitter. I think I I did have a look at the pterosaur her. Receives, I think it's called, by a guy called David Preetzers. And um, um, 
It's, yeah. Good God. The same. Yeah. The ter- this pterosaur nostril thing. Because you know he thinks pterosaurs have got like ex- extra nostrils. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I, yeah. I, just, I no longer visit such that, well, no, I, Yeah, I just, I just did it for a laugh every now and again. And there's, there's a yeah. picture of like pterodactyl. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you. Don't judge me. Yeah. Okay. I'll stop. I'll stop there. No, no. Tell, 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 tell. Well, no. It's just like it's like all of these things. It's like he says that he's identified this structure They've in this particular case. Two nostrils per side, presumably. Is what he means. Um. Okay. Most. Well, most slash all. I think all people interested in pterosaurs are of the opinion, why uh, you know, for obvious reasons, that the nostril hole, the naris. Fused with the nasoantorbital, fused with the antorbital fenestra, creating a larger opening that we call the nasoantorbital fenestra. So that means that the the nostril, the bony nostril at least, is now part of this what single opening. But he says that there's still a different naris that's elsewhere on the snout, mm, like close yeah, to the tip yeah, of the yeah. snout. Yeah. And he points to these tiny little specks of crap that you can see on the snouts and says, "There, that's the nostril." And there's an article where um. He was talking about how he's found the nostril of a pterodactylus specimen, and like you're squinting at this, you know, image, opaque image, and he sort of has a before and after showing, showing where it is, and it's like, no, that is not. It's like, <laughs> no, no, no. We, we, when we're interpreting anatomical structures, rule number one is like be conservative. Okay, if you can't convince yourself that it's there, it might not be there, and you need to convince other people that it's there. I said this before, didn't I? We, we, covered, we did the Peters thing, in the, I think, in the, the episode of Blake Smith, whenever that was, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So you should be conservative. And um, there's another thing. There's another second point, but I can't remember it now. But, but being conservative and also just like being able to convince other people. And if there's ambiguity about it, there's a difference between saying, I think there might be this, and there is this, and he's saying there is this, and this thing is all over the place. Oh, okay, stop there because we're yes. debating time. To- the main thing you need to be able to do is convince other people, I think, right? And if you are trying for years and you can't convince a single other person of your hypotheses, then you may as well give up. Even if you're right, you may as well give up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but <laughs> so pterosaur heresies and reptileevolution.com remain the unabated bastions of crap that uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's I don't know if that's harsh but I just please I'm just really worried that people are you know people google synapsid evil because I because I googled synapsid cladogram earlier yeah it's just flooded with David Peters crap so uh, yeah it's pretty crazy how many things he's managed to touch now isn't it <laughs> spoiling everything <laughs> Except for dinosaurs. There's so much dinosaur stuff out there that he's just... He can't win there, can he? But he, anything vaguely obscure... Yeah, but anything vaguely obscure, he's all over that shit. Yes. Oh, uh, and that reminds me. Um, uh, I just visited yesterday the Progressive Paleontology Conference, which this year was held at the National Oceanography Centre, University of Southampton. Progressive Paleontology is... I. Th- I I don't know if it's always in the UK. I'm pretty sure it is. It's like a, I think, a UK thing for PhD uh, paleontology students. And um, I couldn't be there all day, but I was there for like a, 
there were there were like two sections pretty much devoted entirely to vertebrates and the quality of the talks wow really impressive i can remember giving my own progressive paleontology talks back when i was a phd student uh some years ago and my god my talks were terrible and some of the other people's <laughs> talks were terrible as well in fact some of the worst talks i've ever seen no, I'm sure no one will mind me saying this. We're progressive paleontology talks. So I've got some great stories about them. But this one, wow, <laughs> things have really changed because it was it was hyper professional. The talks were really good. You could watch it streamed live online by the Paleocast people. Well done, Paleocast, um, particularly Dave. Um, great talks by Davida Poffer on. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I said his name wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. Davida Poffer. Mm -hmm on pliosaur tooth replacement, CT scans, that was just beautiful, Ooh, amazing stuff. Uh, my buddy Ben Moon on um, ichthyosaur phylogeny. Um, there was Michael Sullivan on Parasicephalus, which you would have heard before SVPCA. Um, Rebecca Groom had her paleoplushies stall, which just looked incredible. And she's going to be selling stuff at Tezucon. So we'll see those again. She does a life-size Microraptor. Really? Cool. Life size Yeah, I saw that online. I didn't know it was life size. Maybe I, I don't read things. I well, she does too. <laughs> she does like a little one. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, and then the life size one is whatever oh, it is. Cool. 50%. Yeah. So bring uh, your money oh, to Tetsukon. Bring your money to Tetsukon. There'll be lots to buy. Um, but the, the reason, sorry, the reason I remember to talk about Prog, Prog Pal, Progressive Paleontology, is because there were two talks that used Dave Peters' reconstructions. Because and I've said uh, when I uh, well, it used to be the case that when I saw this, I would go to the person afterwards and say, "Don't use David Peters because it's like that's not a good idea, um, yeah. because it's just not trustworthy." But on the other hand, it's like there is this problem that if you want to find a reconstruction of a placodon or a hoopsukian or or whatever, he's the only guy who's done it. He's the only guy who's got it online. So it's very easy to churn out a lot of stuff if you don't have you're not bound by reality. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> mm. Also, he's tremendously enthusiastic, of course, as we all know, which is why he manages to uh, produce so much stuff. But really, you should just be shouting at them during the talks, Darren. Mm, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you ever been in an, audi in an audience where someone just shouts up and, and stands up and shouts from the, from the audience? I haven't been to one where they shout, but I have been to ones where they like grumbling and mumbling, yeah. No, I've been to talks where people have literally stood up in the middle of the talk and have said, that is not true, that is a lie, don't say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. That's very exciting, I'd love to be in a, talk, uh, a conference yeah. like that. Um, I'm trying to think what they were on. Do you think we'll get any at TetsuCon? I hope so. Was it unconvention or something like this? Uh, one of them was a, uh, a talk about um, the anatomy of Archaeopteryx and SVP. Mm. And given the talk was being given by a notorious um, a guy who... Wait, okay, I'll say. I, was, I wasn't going to say his name. John Rubin, who started out as a, a physiologist... And then began saying, well, okay, so far as I could tell, his, his story arc then involved him saying weird things about how birds and other theropods were really different. And, and then seemed to be saying that, that birds aren't theropods, birds aren't dinosaurs, 
there's something else. They're long. They're like relatives of Longi Squama or something. I don't know. Um, so it was, yeah. But what was? There's definitely other stuff. It'll come back. It'll come back to me. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. I've got. Mm. I've been to some hilarious talks. Absolutely unbelievable talks. Um, and part of that is through going to like cryptozoology conventions and stuff because you yeah. just go to like the. They've, they might be the worst talks ever, but they're actually the most memorable talks, which kind of makes them the best talks ever. <laughs> Did I tell you about the one? Did I tell you about the one where the speaker and I can't mention any names here? The speaker started off by relating an, what he considered an amusing anecdote, and it involved the abduction of a child, and it wasn't amusing at all. And it like it had to result in him getting physically, physically like kicked out of the meeting because pe- <laughs> people were crying and everything. Have I not really? ever told you that story? Yeah. No, you haven't told me that story. So remind me when we finished recording, because it's oh, that's that's great for our listeners. It's I'm stunning. Sure Sorry, yeah. listeners. So well, it's a really good story, which I'll tell you after the podcast yeah. stops. Well, the story <sighs> is um, is politically incorrect on the highest possible level, and it's like how anyone could consider it like <laughs> a relatable anecdote. <laughs> I've got this funny story to tell you, and it's like. One of the most offensive things you get. By the way, it does not. In, it's like I should just stop there, but I'll just say it doesn't involve anything sinister. It's just very, very weird. And let's move on. Oh, <laughs> such a tease! <laughs> right, should we do cash for questions? Cash for questions. Cash let's for do questions. 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 Right. Let me just uh, open the file. Yeah. <clears throat> I love how you have everything ready before we start, Derek. Busy. <laughs> Cash for questions. Cash okay, for questions. Right. I'm going to do the. I'm going to do Grant Harding's one first. Alrighty. Okay, so this question from Grant Harding, as I said. Hi, Grant. And Grant's question is. Uh, there's a lot of names in here, and I'm not absolutely sure how to pronounce okay, them. They're but, pronounced okay, Cedicarus so, and Tamisiocarus. Cedicarus, Tamisiocarus, Tamisiocarus, and Auronus. 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 So, Cedicarus anticipated the discovery of Tamisiocarus, and Andrea Chow. 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 <laughs> Who would say such a stupid pronunciation? Darren Chow, really. Um, has pointed out how Aronis looks a lot like Greg Paul's hypothetical pro-Avis. Any other real discoveries presaged by speculative zoology? <clears throat> yeah? Yeah? That's a good question. Yeah. So, can you hear me typing? Yes. Right. The reason I'm typing. So, so uh, uh, let me find that article. Okay. So, where do we where do we start? Do we, what, what do you want to say? I, I think you should answer the question. The question is: I do think there are several creatures which could be construed as several creatures in speculative zoology that could be construed as like since having been discovered in reality. But some of them are, it's a little bit, um, like, so, so, okay, I'm going to start with the new dinosaurs of, so Dougal Dixon, uh, those of you who read a blog called Tetrapod Zoology will be familiar with the fact that I, I published a, uh, an interview with Dougal Dixon recently. Dougal Dixon 
a uh, author and visionary who 1981 produced After Man and then afterwards uh, 1988 produced the uh, the new dinosaurs and then uh, 1991 whatever it was Man After Man the most controversial of the three and yes I did not I wasn't allowed to cover the stuff that made it controversial some of you know what I'm talking about um, in the new dinosaurs Dougal read all the stuff by Robert Backer and Greg Paul and decided that in the new... So the idea of the new dinosaurs is it's, it's a fictional book where the KPG event... Shh, silence from John. Wow, weird. MC Tom Holtz, good work. Extinction. <laughs> extinction time. In, in the alternative speculative world of the new dinosaurs, the end Cretaceous extinction event has not happened, so... Cretaceous dinosaur lineages have persisted to the present, and we are looking at a world still ruled by non-bird dinosaurs and also pterosaurs and plesiosaurs and other mesozoic animals. And these animals look really weird. Uh, I would say that a lot of them don't make a lot of sense in terms of what we actually understand about dinosaur and pterosaur and plesiosaur evolution. Uh, but yeah, it was the it was the eighties. It was different back then. Everything was different. It was. I mean, it was a crazy. It was a crazy time. It was a crazy yeah. time. Um, and uh, some of the uh, dinosaurs in the new dinosaurs, they're like, bear in mind, it was still considered, in quotes, heretical or unusual to like put fur and feathers and things on non-bird dinosaurs. And a lot of the animals in the new dinosaurs have got like, in, they've got pelts and fuzz and stuff on them. So, so these animals, they look really strange. They look really different compared to other 1980s dinosaurs. So Brian Sweetek published this article. Um, in uh, 2011 and he took some of the dinosaurs from Google Dixons, the new dinosaurs and said ah they actually do kind of foreshadow um, discoveries made you know things we've since discovered so, so some of the some of the um, uh, comparisons are a little bit loose but oh, I still think there's something in it it's worth talking about it so there's this weird like anteating armor-plated theropod called the pangaloon um, in uh, the new dinosaurs, and Brian says, "Well, that kind of sounds a little bit like an Alvarez saw because okay, they're not armor-plated, but they are—they have got big, you know, arm claws, and it's been proposed by several workers that they're specialized marmacophages, specialized, you know, eaters of ants and termites and whatnot." Um, there's tree climbing little dinosaurs that could be seen as similar to things like Scansoriopteryx, these tiny little long-fingered weird uh, theropods of uncertain affinities. May they may be related to Oviraptorosaurs, according to some workers. Um, now he's talking about the coat color in uh, the crack beak, which uh, is saying it's similar to the coloration of Anchiornis. I don't know about that. Um, yeah, I, if you if you really want to follow this one up, then check out this article. I just googled Brian Sweetek new dinosaurs, Dougal Dixon, and um, that will take you to this idea that several of the dinosaurs um, in and pterosaurs in the new dinosaurs do foreshadow what we've discovered since. So I say and pterosaurs because I just remembered, of course, the new dinosaurs includes the Lank, which is meant to be a flightless giraffe-like pterosaur, mm. which you know has always seemed like a pretty dumb idea, but in some respects, the anatomy of the Lank isn't a million miles away from what we now imagine for as darker pterosaurs. The idea that they are like, you know, uh, pretty good quadrupedal 
terrestrial stalker type animals. They're not herbivores, which the lank is. The lank is meant to be cropping grass and it even has teeth. But um, yeah, the idea that as darker to like walking around proficiently on all fours. Yeah. Uh, and and well, you know, we still talk all the time about you'll you'll be familiar with papers by Don Henderson and others where they suggest that maybe the giant as darkids were flightless or you know may have chosen not to fly that much. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's yeah that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um. In terms of other stuff, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of things that we had in all yesterdays that have since proven prophetic, but I don't think there are any because (laughs) (laughs) we're just 100% wrong. (laughs) Because they were just put out there as like, we don't think this is right, but we can't say that it's wrong. So surely that's how science works. Um. Also, it wasn't long enough ago to give us time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's one sort of relatively famous example, which I think we've talked about before, but I'll, I'll mention it again, is um, Heilman's, is it Proto-Avis? The four-winged, think... mm. um, four-winged tree-dwelling um, Proto-Avis, yeah. which I think does look fairly similar to Microraptor, something like this. Well, it's although we don't think they flew like the same way, but you know, obviously, no, it's it's um, Beebs Beebs Tetraptrix of the early 1900s. Because I don't, yeah, Heilman's Proto Avis uh, is supposed to have hind limb feathers, but it's not supposed to have like long hind limb feathers. But yeah, William Beeb, or I, I presume it's pronounced Beeb, not BB, because he's got an E on the end of it. But he uh, published a paper uh. titled A Tetraptric Stage in the Ancestry of Birds. I want to say like 1906, but no, 1915. And um, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the classic reconstruction that most people point to as being, um, you know, possibly presaging things like Microraptor. But, but you're not wrong. I mean, Heilman did do a similar thing in the 20s. It's just Beeb did it first. Yes. Um, so there's that. There's that. Now, in the Squamazoic, which is my speculative alternative universe, dominated entirely by snakes, lizards, and amphisbanians, there's a major group of herbivorous uh, agamid-type lizards called the Euromastixians. They are obviously based on, they're basically souped up versions of Euromastics, which are the spiny tailed agamas or mastigias or dabs, whatever you want to call them. This like bulky, omnivorous and herbivorous group of like um, uh, uh, desert dwelling agamas of, of Africa, Middle East, Asia. Um, they ge- they're generally they're up to like 60 centimeters long. They've got like a tortoise shaped head. They've got like a spiky tail, which is that they use for self-defense. They use it as a burrow plug. And there's basically a group of those that are the size of like rhinos. Now, that I mentioned this on Tet Zoo in the in the respective article. That is in some way similar to Barbaturex morrisoni, which was published. Uh, was it early this year? A um uh a a like big uh, herbivorous uh, agamid lizard that was living in tropical Asia 
Myanmar, I think, uh, during the Miocene. No, the Eocene. Oh, God damn it. Memory. <laughs> Barbaturex Morrison. I, Morrison because it's named after, named after Jim Morrison, the so-called Lizard King. Uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, the similarities enough for you to think that, that I can pretend that it sort of presages the actual discovery of a real animal. In fact, okay, so here's the Tetsu article. It's wittily titled, The Squamazerk Actually Happened, kind of. Giant herbivorous lizards in the Paleogene. In the hypothetical alternative geological epoch known as the Squamazerk, giant iguanian lizards known as Euromysticians dominate big-bodied herbivorous herbivore niches across Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Blah, blah, blah. As revealed today in proceedings, the Royal Society B, Jason Head of the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and Ativa Colleagues, have discovered the fossils of a remarkable new iguanian lizard that they've named Barbaturix, Morris and I. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a case of speculative zoology presaging a genuine discovery. Good, yeah. So that's another tick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Cetiocaris, uh, Dougal Dixon's new dinosaurs, um, Beebs, Teptraptorix, Squamazoic, uh, Euromystixians, Paul's Proavis. Now, there must be others. Um, I'm talking about speculative zoology at Tetsugon. So I've been thinking of, basically, a part of the talk is going to be... That's not a good idea to give away what I want to talk about, is no, it? No, it's not, no. You have to, <laughs> you have to come to Tetsugon. <laughs> and if you're an American listener or, you know, someone that doesn't live in the UK, well, you know, just... Yeah. Just pony up the cash for the plane fare. I mean, come on. Yeah, slackers, come on. What's a few thousand dollars between friends? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I you'd think we've I think we've talked about another one before because there's there's got to be a fairly rich vein of people um, speculating about the origins of clades that have yep. since gone back and we've found that yeah it does look something like that because obviously you can. If you're relatively knowledgeable, you can take a fairly good guess at what sort of thing you must be looking at. Um, so there must be mammalian examples and things. I can't think of any. We spoke about this before because we were either talking about the fact that people have invented hypothetical proto-bats. So there's several papers and books where bat workers have said... Because it's, it's, it's one of those classic things where you know people have known of archaic fossil bats for decades... Things like the the classic one is Echaeronycteris, mm. and there's a few others, Paleocoropteryx and Archaeonycteris. These like Eocene and Ligocene bats. They're, they're more archaic than modern bats. They've got like more claws and stuff, and the the, the configuration of their uh, tails and hind limbs and the w wing membranes is different. But they're still bats. They're still you know yeah. true bats. All the things that make a bat a bat. But so so people have said, well, where's the like you know the the, the the, the one with half a wing or something, the, the prototype to that. So there's a whole load of illustrations. And um, as yet, people haven't found a proto-bat that really does match the hypothetical proto-bats of the literature. But there is this um, uh, the Onychonycteris, the so-called 20-claw bat, this, this bat that, unlike all the other bats, including even the other known archaic ones, it has bats. <laughs> it, it has claws on all of its digits. Hang on, hang on. So this 20-claw this 
clawed bat has bats on all of its claws. Claws <laughs> on all of its bats. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, so that could be seen as presaging some of the illustrations of hypothetical protobats because obviously one of the things that... Cause, so living bats, uh, um, most bats have only got a thumb claw, but fruit bats and some other uh, pteropodiforms, they've got digit one and two claws. Still got a claw on digit two on the hand. But no bat has got digits, has got claws on manual digits three, four, five. Oniconicturus has. So um, you could say that, oh, I, I don't know. Is that a good example? Yeah. Well, they, no, that's the problem. They might become speculative zoology that was true in the future, but currently they're not, are they? Well, I'm saying I'm saying that there are illustrations out there of hypothetical proto-bats that do resemble oniconicturus. Oh, okay. Right. It was I'm getting saying. very difficult to follow with all your... I'm sorry. I was, I was, I was on all of of, bats. Yeah, yeah I was thinking of... Sense. I was going to go off on all kind of Adam West, you know, riff tangents. And, um, so, you think Batman we would have had more examples Batman. there, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, I'm trying to talk about rubbish, and you were talking about bats. Um, what? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, because people. What Batman's best ever line? What is Batman's best ever line? And it's come know. from the Adam West years. It's not from. Um, no, I don't know. What is his best line? Okay, Batman and Robin are trapped in a giant hourglass. Mm. I, I don't know, penguin or something set up, <laughs> and sand is raining down on the top of them. Have I told you this before? I don't know. Maybe. Okay, and uh, Robin says, "Batman, what are we gonna do?" <laughs> and no, he says. Holy squirrels in a cage, Batman. <laughs> what are we going to do? And Batman says, stroking his chin thoughtfully, squirrels in a cage, squirrels in a cage. That's it, Robin. Run round like a yeah, squirrel. Yeah, yeah, run round like a squirrel, yeah. yeah. So they run round yeah. like squirrels in a cage, and that makes the hourglass rock. Rock and, and tip over. Yeah. Tip smashes. And yes. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. yeah, it was a good show. I like. I I am gonna say something that's gonna en enrage our nerd audience. I prefer. Yeah, I prefer this. Uh, I prefer the Adam West Batman's to the Dark Knight and all that rubbish. <laughs> have you seen the new Ben Affleck Batman? Ben yeah, Affleck so... Batman. I just don't understand why we need a new Batman film every four years. Because uh, money. <laughs> that's just crazy. And Spider Man too. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Seen... I don't know. I'm just, uh, yeah. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to watch it. It's, but it's not done for the good of us all. It's done. It's a, it's a, an, an industry that literally involves billions of dollars, right? Yeah, so... but it involves billions of dollars because people go and see it. I guess. Well, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. why? Why do they go and see it? Well, I like these movies. They, I like you know, watching. Yeah, them. no. But I tell you what, they should do with Batman. If we need them this this um, frequently, which apparently we do, I think they need to make it a television show. Like one of those, you know, like fancy box set type things, right? Make um, it a classy thing, big budget television show, and stop with the stop with the sequels. Now, if you and the watched... prequels and the reboots, because all it, that's really dull. Yeah, I, I, I've got a vague recollection of hearing that this was on the cards. Um, if you watch the extras on the DVD for Dark, the Dark Knight, or maybe the Dark Knight Rises, I can't remember, but whichever. Um, there's a there's there's like part of a a news program or a discussion TV show where people are where politicians like uh, 
everyone is actors, by the way. Yeah, I'm talking about actors. They are having an actual debate about what about policy in Gotham, what they're actually going to do about you know certain policies that affect crime rates and economics and stuff. And so they have invented in the Christopher Nolan Batman universe this whole basically pretty boring but real feeling world of like the politics of Gotham and I thought I'd heard that there was going to be like a TV show called Gotham and Batman like um Avengers no are you talking Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. the heroes might not appear in it at all or might only be you know Batman might be referred to regularly but this is what's known as a spin-off a spin-off which are always classy Always, yeah. I mean, they're 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 right up there with prequels. <laughs> uh, I think of a good spin-off. No, <laughs> the th- the problem is that some things are spin-offs, but they became so famous, and the original thing wasn't very famous ah. that you don't even think they are spin-offs. Now, when I was a kid, I was a religious watcher of Penelope Pitstop. Penelope Pitstop, yeah, and latterly dick dastardly and muttley Mm. and then discovered this is quite common for people in the uk i should say to our american listeners discovered later on that there was a thing called wacky races there's oh wacky races has got penelope pitstop in it yeah they joined them all together yeah they joined them oh how cool (laughs) now penelope pitstop (laughs) is in it together with dick dastardly muttley and a load of other characters no you idiot that's because penelope pitstop was a (laughs) spin-off of wacky races but Another thing, the Muppet Show. Again, if you're British, I, well, I'm interested in your experience here. I the Muppet Show was like a staple childhood thing, and it's like years later I discovered about this thing called Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> Sesame Street. It's got the Muppets in it. Well, the Muppets are in this other show called Sesame Street, and then you discover as an adult, ah, oh, actually, Sesame Street is the thing that invented the Muppets, and then the Muppets got their own show. Um, is that true? That's true. Okay, Fact. I thought that. Yeah, you know, I, th- I thought they were crossover rather than oh, spin-off. Dear, no, but no, no, no. You, you're probably right. But um, the, my extra- uh, Australian experience is that Sesame Street is famous. It's more famous than the Muppets. So I came across the Muppets like, oh, it's sort of like a grown-up version of the bits in Sesame Street or something. <laughs> Uh, we should talk about the Muppets sometime. I, I quite know quite a lot about Muppets. Do you? I know absolutely yeah. nothing about Muppets. So pretentious. <laughs> I never thought how much that sounds like Yoda. <laughs> Frank Oz does do voices for a lot of Muppets, but not Miss Piggy. At least I hope not. I really should check. Uh... <laughs> oh, Kermit! <Kirby. laughs> My name is Kermit the Frog. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's move on to another cash for question before. Oh, you can do it in a Muppet voice if you like. Oh. <laughs> right, so Marcus Good asks, Darren, could you answer so this say, so, in, so, so, as Kermit the Frog? Thank you to Grant for that yeah, question. Sorry. Uh, sorry, we just got, just went stupid on it. Well, ask John for you. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so we we may remember, and I want to say we may remember additional stuff and come back to that because that's a good question. And speculative zoology is always there in the background. But um, yeah. Sorry. So, so Marcus, Marcus has sent us a good question. Yeah, so Marcus, good. What the hell is with feline DNA? That is, why is it so fluid with jagulets, ligers, tigons, ossicats, 
the domestic ocelot hybrid. I'm not reading this out very well. There you go. Several domestic hybrids, etc. Clearly, cats have a pretty long lineage, so why are they also relatively undifferentiated genetically? Mm. 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 Ooh, booger booger. Genetics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to say anything about it? Um, well, I, I would say they're not necessarily undifferentiated un genetically, they're not reproductively isolated. And although I don't, I don't really know anything about this in particular, and I don't know very much about genetics, they seem like slightly different things, although of course they probably are quite related. I don't know how different you can be genetically and not be reproductively isolated. Um, so, yeah, what's with the lack of reproductive isolation in cats? Yeah. So to start with, I have to say, in response to this question, can people not send us questions about genetics? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Thanks for the question. Because I just, I don't know, I, I've tried, you know, I've tried over the years to read up about genetics and I just, just lose all interest in it. It's just so boring. It's horrible stuff. Um, it's worse than and fish. It's, it's worse than fish. Fish genetics. Um, so I, now... <sighs> It's easy to find out about the fact that cats do seem to be uh, genetically plastic, in, in quotes, and that all kinds of, yeah, as, as, as Marcus has said, all kinds of hybrids. Basically, it seems anything goes. And it's not just as if you're talking about, you can understand that there could be a hybrid between, like, you know, European wildcat and a domestic cat, because they're pretty much the same thing. And they've, some people have even made the argument that domestic cats, you know, should be included in the same species as the European wildcats or the old world wildcats. But it's not just that kind of level of hybridization. There's also hybridization between lineages that are as distinct as they can be within the cat radiation. So a lot of work has been done on establishing the, you know, phylogeny of cats. Um, there's a, a paper, can't remember the name of the authors, don't have it in front of me, haven't checked it. Oh, hold on, I've got it around me somewhere actually right now. I'll take all that back. Uh, Cats are supposed to be like a, a post-Miocene radiation. So they're actually, you know, not that old. Here we go. Johnson et al., published in Science, 2006. The late Miocene radiation of modern Philly, a genetic assessment. So we understand the cat phylogeny quite well. And you've got this, like, uh, one, of the older, one of the oldest um, branches within crown cats is the... Um, well, I was going to say the one that leads to ocelots and margays, this South American leopardus clade. But that's not true because pantherines and the caracal lineage and the baycat lineage, they diverged before. The, the, the group of small cats that includes South American ones and most of the... Oh, dear, I've made a mess of this really. You <laughs> sure have. Um, I'm not okay. following. What about Fact cheetahs, Darren? Where do they fit in? Uh, let's not start talking about the shape of the cat phylogeny because that will that's a whole nother debate don't ever say whole nother again Darren. It's a terrible thing to say I like that's a different mother. discussion <laughs> um uh, uh like, like, <laughs> perhaps it'll help if you do it in a muppet voice <laughs> like every movie from <laughs> uh, what's fuzzy bear ever said must be loads of funny, funny fuzzy bear quotes. Um, is there a cat muppet? Uh, <laughs> is there a cat muppet? And can it re can it reproduce with regular cats? <laughs> what does meow sound like? 
Okay. Okay. So back on track here. So there's um, very distinct lineages of cats. My, okay. The basic point that I was trying to make there and failed is that it's that it's not as if hybridization has only occurred between taxa or populations or whatever that have been separated for like a couple of I don't know hundreds of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years. But some of these lineages, like for example, members of the ocelot lineage and members of the domestic cat lineage, they have been separated since something stupid like the end of or the middle of the the plot, the, the Miocene, the Miocene, like ten million years ago, and they can still they can still hybridize. Um, now, so this is and this this is well known. This this hybridization you can get with them, you can get within cats. So I went and looked at all the papers I have that talk about the uh, you know anything to do with the genetics of cats, and also looked at some books on the biology of cats. I mean, I would say the best one is Andrew Kishner's The Natural History of the Wildcats. Really good book. And you know what? None of these books give you the first inkling of an idea as to why this, um, this like, you know, flexibility occurs and also how it works in terms of meiosis and what it means in terms of how the chromosomes, you know, match up and everything and i don't think that anybody actually really knows i think there are some vague ideas that it happens just because it can just because there aren't things that stop it from happening so even in animals where their numbers of chromosomes are different like they'll have i don't know like 36 37 or 38 chromosomes you'd think that well the chromosomes aren't matching up with another pair so meiosis isn't occurring but that's still okay. There can still be like chromosomes that aren't involved, but it's still, things are still similar. Now, things are still okay enough for it still to work. And there's a, there's kind of like a, a bigger picture background story to this, which actually doesn't involve the genetics. And it's more to do with the, the whole organism, the, the, whole bio, the whole biology of the animals. Um, think about what cats are. Cats are pretty samey. The main difference is, size obviously you know small cats and big cats they're, they're much of a muchness mm. and for this reason there isn't the same like there, there wouldn't be the same developmental problems if the baby of one if an embryo of one species were to grow inside the body of another one you know there's no like obvious problems there as there are with some animals some of the, sometimes just the the growth of an embryo can literally you know not be permissible um for physical reasons sometimes for like you know reasons to do with the uh, the 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 uterus will uh, you know just it just won't allow the embedding of the um the developing zygote or or whatever there's all those kinds of problems and um the the sameness of cats it seems that the genetic differences like within the group are like uh, pretty pretty shallow and by that i mean that um if you think of all the things that make, there's, there's obviously like a load of genetic things that make cats different. I don't think, so far as I can tell, they haven't been tremendously innovative in the evolution of their genotype, which means that, that although there's the sorts of variation you expect between species and lineages that have been evolving over the past, whatever it is, you know, uh, more than 10 million years since the end of the Miocene, because we're only, we're only talking about crown cats here. We're not talking about obviously fossil ones, extinct lineages. Um, there, there don't seem to be major innovations like 
the deletion of whole sections of the genome or the duplication of whole sections of the genome or the insertion of entirely new parts of the sequence that make lineages different from the others, right? So far as I can tell, they're all pretty much compatible in terms of like genetic similarity. And so, so I would say that um, in terms of like morphological similarity and in terms of like lack of genetic innovation, they're similar enough for, for hybridization to, to like, you know, to, for the, for that, that's kind of like the background setting mm. to, uh, to the fact that the, the hybridization is possible. So what's keeping them separate? Why aren't they, why isn't they just like one pool of like <laughs> all cats basically are, are hybrids? Well, the fact that they've segregated themselves into different body shapes. So obviously if a tiger meets a, a sand cat, it's going to eat it rather than mate with it. <laughs> and, and also obviously the, the fact that cats are, we know that there are many subtle differences in terms of anatomy and proportion and so on, but, but the fact that they're sort of like, you know, multi-purpose animals that can live in forests and deserts and grasslands and towns means that you've got, you know, they're segregated in terms of like where, you know, habitat wise, you know, lions are generally savanna cats and uh, jaguars are generally jungle cats and, and that sort of thing, which, which might actually prevent hybridization occurring in the wild as much as it would if they were meeting each other regularly. And then obviously behavioral things as well, because they've evolved their own vocalizations and coat colors and social styles and so on. But in terms of like how the actual genetics works, I mean, you know, specifically with, with addressing Marx's question, what the hell is it? With the, what is the deal with the DNA? I don't know. I can't find the answer. I can't find anyone that does provide the answer. People that know more about genetics than we do should certainly, you know, think about, you know, writing in and saying something intelligent. Try not to make us look too stupid. But, but um, I would say that there's a presupposition, and I think you're getting at this in this question, that there's something special about feline DNA. And that might not be the case. There could be something special about their um, evolutionary adaptation. So instead of presupposing there's a lot of um, diversity there, what if we approach this the other way and said, okay, there's sort of one basic cat and it's, and it differentiates, it's quite morphologically plastic and that it differentiates in, into um, different niches, but it's still the same basic thing. So that it's not actually a tremendous, there's not diversity there. There's nothing special about the DNA. What is special is that their, their adaptive radiation makes them look different. Um, and you could you could say that there may be a sort of a an analogy would be domestic dogs. Like you can get some crazy looking different dogs, but no one's asking. Well, we do ask how they they have such morphological plasticity, but we don't ask why can they still breed with each other. Well, we might, I guess, but that doesn't seem like the question. It seems reversed to me. So we could you could make an argument that actually a lot of these cats are one species, and that. Uh, more biological species, and that they've split into subpopulations which are quite morphologically distinct because they, they do different things. Um, I'm not saying this is the case, but I, I think that there is a argument to be made I know in that saying. direction. Yes, yes. If we, if we were to go down the, 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 if we were to run with the full ramifications of the biological species concept, mm. then, <laughs> then, then yes, um, I, I, see, I see where you're coming from. But building on that as well, I also think that um, um, 
I, I agree with what you just said about the fact that we shouldn't necessarily regard cats as as unusual because the more we learn about um, hybrids that occur uh, in the wild i mean in we know that in captivity basically you know all kinds of crazy stuff can happen people have crossbred uh, like for example pheasants with grouse you know lineages that have been separate for 50 million years this is this, there's like hybrids between um <laughs> Uh, lizards that have been separated for at least forty million years. Weren't we talking about that? You remember the you remember the alleged uh, horse deer hybrid from the New Forest? Now that isn't real. <laughs> that that's not real. But um, but people have definitely in captivity created hybrids between things that have been been distinct for tens of millions of years. Ordinarily, the sort of thing you think there's no way that would be possible. The point, my point here is that hybridization. The, the generation of hybrids, which sometimes are fertile, you know, often are not, but sometimes mm. are fertile, um, that probably is the normal condition. And what, but what has happened untold hundreds, thousands, millions of times in evolution is things have come in afterwards that prevent it. So, like, the body shape has changed, which means that, you know, a donkey can't grow a horse inside or ordinarily, although sometimes you know so the, the, a body shape difference or uh something to do with the biochemistry the physiology you know body temperature body temperature is different chemistry is different the anatomy of the womb is different um the behavior is different which means that the species literally can't plug into each other anymore they you know mechanically can't copulate i think lots of things have come in which have latterly prevented or made it more difficult for hybridization to occur so we should think that hybridization is like the normal condition and in cats the fact that the that this body shape evolved the pro think of the prototype cat which wouldn't have been that different from the cats you can think of um it was really successful and good at you know this particular size and shape and it's then yeah radiated extensively to different habitats different coat colors um different different behaviors but like i said earlier that hasn't been this variation, this diversification hasn't been coupled with a major, with a set of changes that prevent hybridization. Whereas maybe in other groups of animals that they have, as the groups have diversified, you know, um, there have been changes that prevent or disable. Yeah, uh, there's not much dietary difference between cats, is there? Well, maybe I, there is, I shouldn't be... I'm just All thinking of things, things like body chemistry and stuff, which might yeah. might happen in other lineages. It's just not going to change very much in cats. Pretty much all the differences you can think of among the cats are to do with body size. That's not to say there aren't proportional differences, and obviously yeah. there are weird there are weirdos like you know cheetahs and stuff. But um, in general, it's it's a size change difference, isn't it? And in fact, there are bi biomechanical studies have confirmed this that the big cats just pretty much do the same thing as the small cats. But which which does probably put a limit on like you know the upper limit to body size, but um, yeah. but I think yeah I, I I don't know if we're getting anywhere towards an answer. Well, but I do you think that I think we have asked another question, which is asking whether the the supposition of the question is something that you can make that there is something special about cat DNA that there might just yes. not be. There's nothing special about cat DNA. Yeah, there's something special about or somewhat unusual about cat evolution in that they have differentiated body size and habitat quite a bit without yes without changing their dna but that's well, not yeah yeah i kind of think i kind of think we've been misled 
by the biological species concept into thinking you know people that have um you know you know how that there's whole areas of science where the general um the general feeling the general opinion that people have is actually we have that idea because we've all read about it in the same books and it's in the same books because it was actually down to one or two individuals who promoted a view that was really popular and was then absorbed into you know it was repeated in the textbooks and it became we're coming back to that textbook orthodoxy thing again <laughs> but i think people yeah. like ernst meyer and and others who promoted the biological species concept made it really popular and did lots of good popular writing that made sure this idea was widely disseminated Maya was using the the um, white-headed gulls, the, the herring gull and the uh, lesser blackback gull and so on, as uh, exemplars of this supposed, you know, important uh, concept, the biological species concept. It's like, in actual fact, the more we've learned about hybrids and hybridization, the more problematic the biological species concept seems. And the more groups you read about, the more you find out that hybridization is like not an unusual event that shouldn't occur and is evolutionarily bad. It's like the norm. It's just that it's been prevented or disabled in lots of lineages. So um, I was reminded of this paper by Alan and Short, Interspecific and Extraspecific Pregnancies in Equids, Anything Goes. That's the title of the paper, Anything Goes. Um, and it's all about the fact that, you know, equids, horses, asses, zebras, Similar thing, in a sense, to cats. Basically, anything can hybridise um, if conditions allow. And when you and and they there's a section in this paper where they talk about hybridisation between rabbits and hares, which seems crazy because you know they think how different think how different a hare is in body shape from a rabbit, leopard versus oryctolagus, um, and and other mammals. But when it comes to the the bit about like like I said, you know the mechanics of this, how does this actually work in terms of meiosis and whatnot? The mechanisms responsible for these large differences remain unknown. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks. So um, that was a, a paper in Journal of Heredity, which I thought would actually, you know, give me some genie science -y answers. Yeah. So, well, I guess part of the problem, I guess, is that, yeah, you'd think there'd be more of an active area of research, though, wouldn't you? I'm thinking that, you know, hybrids are actually relatively they're not the normal state of affairs you'd have to go out and deliberately do it to study it right yeah um oh didn't we cover did we cover something about hybridization before the fact that people are increasingly finding cases where lineages and i'm I only care here about tetrapods because i know this is all, all over the place in plants and never mind non at you know non like you know little things <laughs> micro like protists and crap like that only in te in tetrapods, there's cases where people have found that a lineage has arisen through ancient an ancient hybridization event. So like there's there's weird ass looking deers and weird ass looking woodpeckers, and people have always said, oh, <laughs> why does that animal look like, you know, two kinds of deer stuck together? The front end is a red deer, and the back end is a I don't know, some obscure Asian deer you've never heard of, and it's like, well, actually, the genetics show that's exactly what it is. It's the result of some like long distant lineages lineages have been separated for like 20 million years of you know it's not a tree of life it's a web of life they've sort of come back together at some other point yes it makes so, i think 
like because obviously species concepts and um systematics and all this it's, it's a way of trying to make sense of all this and if it's a web it's really difficult to classify this stuff isn't it there's going to be a resistance to it like because if you think about it i mean if the biological species concept falls which it kind of has to and it never works for asexual organisms anyway um <clears throat> it leaves everything being way more subjective than most scientists are happy with. Um, <laughs> and if you're getting hybridization happening up higher, uh, higher and higher taxonomic levels, it's just, it just feels like, oh, it's so messy. We'll never make sense of it all, right? Well, yeah. Let's just well, ignore yeah. it. it. Let's ignore it. It's like it's a freak event. We can just, just pretend it doesn't happen. The interesting thing is that... um. Cladistic taxonomy um, actually allows for this, which is quite neat, but it's still very confusing to conceptualize it. Yes, and we don't. Well, this is a big mess. It, another big mess. This is a big nasty area because there's a huge number of people that don't that refuse to give up on kind of old school class like ranked classification. Yeah, but they're going to die eventually. They can't die eventually. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> but um, but but then at the mo and then at the moment, you know, coupled with that, we've got the fact that we don't have um a, a like an agreed upon nomenclature for these units that don't correspond. That the, these units that correspond to what we understand. What? How am I? What am I trying to say? It's like. It's like so some things that we call species turn out to be like the segment, a part of a lineage, but not the whole of the lineage. Yeah. Or some of them are artificial things that are that are hybrid swarms or like they're you know, a kind of grey zone, a hybrid zone between two other species. But that pre presupposes that there is a thing called species, which is, as I say, it's just right. like not a very defensible concept. Well, I, no, I, I, I totally get that. I, well, I would say that I have said before, a species is whatever the hell we want it to be because all the things that we call species aren't the same. You've got things that literally are hybrids. Yeah. You've got things that are clades. There are species that are clades, but there are species that are just segments of lineages. There must be, there must be chrono species that, you know, they're going to evolve into something else that we'll call a species at some point, yeah. or they have done if they're fossils or whatever. Um, and many other things, many other things as well. Exactly. But devising a, a nomenclature, like an agreed upon, you know, because you know how some uh, people that are very big on on phylogenetic nomenclature, they've come up with like like systems like using little hyphens to show that it's a metataxon or like a little um, uh, a prefix before you use the name or. Or it's got like a three-part name instead of a two-part name, or whatever. None yeah, of those things but I think, before. yeah, I think that a lot of those are trying to jam in something which isn't. Um, it's not actually a, a natural sort of grouping like a clade is. Um, I yeah. think that's the problem, isn't it? It's a, it's a way of jam jamming back in some sort of arbitrary divisions, which we kind of need to make because otherwise it's very difficult to talk about things, isn't it? Like that population of um, cat-type things that lives in such and such 
Mm. You know, you'd have to start replacing them with ever increasingly specific descriptions, and that'd be yes. impossible. Yeah, yeah, we we kind of covered this when we were talking about the dingo paper, weren't we? Yeah. Because that's a, that's a similar thing. So like, who's to say whether that's a species or a that's just true, a population? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This isn't this isn't going to go away. Certainly not in our lifetime. Um. So. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think we answered that. In that, um, yeah, it's not clear that that cats are actually unusual genetically. Um, that lots of other animals seem to do this. Uh, that uh, they're what's the word? Hybridizable, hybridable, <laughs> hybridable, hybridable, <laughs> highly, highly hybridable, highly hybridable. Um, yeah, yeah and. Although there does some, seem to be some sort of interesting plasticity to do with their morphology, it is just sort of size, isn't it? And like, like I said, go back to what I said about it being the fact that this is a samey radiation. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they're, they're, they're all doing the same sort of thing anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anatomically, there. There's and and I think <laughs> genetically as well, no major innovations that could screw with the prospect of uh, yeah successful hybridization. So, um, so whether that means like, uh, uh, no, there's no point in discussing that. But whether that means like a, a uh, if you implanted like a, you know, a lion embryo into an ocelot, whether it would just stay to full term when you, <laughs> you get like a little tiny lion. I don't know. Has anybody tried that? Because <laughs> if you put, if you put like a, a horse embryo, inside a donkey you get a mini donkey sized horse you know <laughs> and if you put a donkey in a horse you get like a giant donkey so uh, well, <laughs> it could burst out like alien <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> I think we're done we're done yes thank you for the question was it Marcus uh, Marcus Good and Grant Harding were our Marcus Good our cash for questioners. Marcus, do you know what Marcus did once? <laughs> I don't know what Marcus did once. <laughs> no. Do you know what yaoi's are? Ah, uh, yes, the, yes, I do. The chocolate things. Yeah, like the then they did a um a series of fossil Australian mammals. That's right. Not we're not just mammals. Everything, the whole kaput. Did they? Whatever. Yeah, all of them, everything. Well, I thought from they like, did the Riversley stuff, but anyway, yeah, maybe they, they did everything. They did like from Ediacaran squidgy things, mm -hmm. dinosaurs, plesiosaurs. Marcus sent me a box of all of them, which I still own, yeah, and well, uh, I play good. with regularly. I've got the platypuses right because they did two platypuses, Steropodon and. Obdurodon. So you're going to find them so you can yeah. show the listeners of the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> ah. Oh my, my god. <laughs> um yeah, I've probably, I probably I don't know whether I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I went to I think it was a Riversley exhibit at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Yeah. Um and it was sponsored by Yowie. And the huh. um the full size models, you know, the models that were meant to look like living animals were coloured in <laughs> In the same as the toys, and Ooh. some of them are a bit gaudy. Gaudy, yes. Flash thought, yeah, because yeah, some of them are like bright yellow and 
stuff though. Yeah, one of them was yellow and blue, I believe, and uh, uh, you should mm. you should try and find it. Uh, in, just okay, it looked fine as the toy. Like the toy looks good, but that's because you sort of expect them to be a bit cartoonified when it's sort of blown up and meant to be super realistic with you know the super realistic eyeballs and everything. You realise just how crazy those colours are on a on a yeah. large we, mammal. We should say for people that don't know, so so Yowie's. The word Yowie is used for an Australian kind of mythical wild person. And then Cadbury's, the confectionery company, they produce these like chocolate Yowies. They're sort of about, I don't know, 50, 10 centimeters tall, I guess. And they're like Kinder eggs. They got inside them a like, a like a little Kinder ball thing. And inside that are these little animals. And they started out with this. Huh? Yeah, they're not allowed Kinder eggs in America. Are they? No, because you're not allowed to put objects inside food right so because the yeah because the little plastic <laughs> shell thing is inside the the chocolate egg that's illegal and apparently there's like all sorts of big customs things that goes on you know where they they feed <laughs> like 100,000 kinder eggs and they chuck them out and stuff like this it's quite funny you should read about wow. it wow wow um, so, a, so an American a, listeners might not even know what American. a Kinder Egg is. Kinder Egg. I, I always thought Kinders were American because they're pretty tacky, but I guess they're. Uh, I think they're German. German or something. Kinder, there's a, there's Kinder a Simpsons Surprise episode where they're. With a K? Yeah, I think that's probably. probably Kinder? German. Oh, it means German for child, doesn't yes. it? It's a child egg. Oh my God, you t- what a realization <laughs> you just had. <laughs> ah, epiphany, everything. <laughs> my worldview. Simpsons episode, they're watching like an advert, a commercial. For like the Super Bowl or something, and at the end it says, "Tickets not to be taken internally." <laughs> <laughs> and and I was just, because of me, they have a warning. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, uh, Yowies. So so first of all, they did these like little Australian. They did Australian wildlife, but then they obviously ran out of those. So that's then they started doing yeah, like little prehistoric animals. They're very cool. There's an Australian cryptozoologist slash mystery investigator guy called Tim the Yowie Man, and that's his <laughs> official name. His official name is, you know, on his passport and everything, is Tim the Yowie Man. And um, I've met him once. Interesting chap. Hang on. Is the um, Yowie Man one word, and is that his last no, no. name? Yowie Man is one word, but the <laughs> is Tim. His middle the name. Yowie Man. Yeah, Tim the Yowie Man. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a friend with him on Facebook. Look him up. But um, Cadbury tried to sue him because he was using the word Yowie. He really? fought them, and I believe he won. Well, yeah. So he should, because he can't. Yeah. Well, it's not as if the word Yowie belongs to uh, exactly to Cadbury's. Yeah. Tim the Yowie Man versus Cadbury's. Let's see what happens. Chalk horror as Yowie stage a comeback. <laughs> Yow squeals Cadbury. Uh, Yowie, he's now oh, got all these good. Awful, awful titles. Journalist. Yow squeals Cadbury. I don't, I, what even kind of language is that? That's the title for a newspaper article. It's a small victory for man, but a giant leap forward in the rights of Australia's elusive yowies. <laughs> the, the Canberra cryptozoologist, apparently it's the study of unusual animal phenomena, Tim the Yowie Man Bull. Also, he's called Tim Bull. Maybe maybe what I just said about the Yowie Man isn't true. <laughs> and Tim the Yowie Man has been battling the confectionery giant Cadbury Schweppes in the Australian Trademarks Tribunal for the past three years for the right to register his Tim the Yowie Man tag as a trademark. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. He's trying to register it as a trademark. That's a bit... Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just love Australian journalism because, okay, <laughs> these are the subtitles for this article. Okay, so it's titled Yow, comma, Squeals Cadbury. First subtitle, so plastic. <laughs> the next one, Senator's Secret. The next one, Bill Loves Bush. And the next one, Out of the Box. The next one, Cream of the Crop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to send you that link just to prove it exists. Can we put it in the show notes? <laughs> oh, no, Darren, no. no. Um, that, that's in my hometown. I never met him. What? Canberra. Oh, Canberra. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, well, it's a big place, I think. What? Canberra. <laughs> Canberra. It's like a. It's huge, isn't it? It's a. No. It's a city. It is a city, but it's not huge. Yeah. But I mean, it's not the sort of thing where, you know, in Crocodile Dundee, where Mick is in New York and he reaches out of the taxi at some New Yorker and says, Hi, my name's Mick Dundee. You'll probably see you around. <laughs> well, hmm. yeah, it's sort of on the edge of that. Um, I think it's similar size to Southampton or something. Uh, well, yeah. Did you vote yesterday? Uh, yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> Why? You don't know how I voted. But no, I no, but just the fact that you voted because straight I know UKIP, people man, straight UKIP. Oh, I'm, yeah, right, yeah. I hate Jesus. foreigners coming over here. <laughs> <laughs> they should all be booted out. Yeah, no. Anyone that says that you shouldn't vote, Jesus Christ. Yes, that's. I don't uh, swear anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very, very important that people did vote in this particular election. Uh, what European Parliament elections for those who aren't? In the European Union. Oh, it was our, it was our um, local elections. Council, oh yeah, it was both. Council, it was both. Yeah. Yes, I realised I didn't know about any of the issues or the policies of the various parties before I voted. So, I'm sure my vote was very useful. Well, yeah, but it's it's still you know, strategic voting in a sense. It's not voting for one party is <laughs> helping the others so well. Uh, no, I I always know who I'm going to vote for. So, um, right, um, we've been talking for a long time now. Yeah. I don't think it's anything else we need. We're, no, so we need to stop. We need to stop. We would, would please stop. <laughs> from all our listeners out there saying, "Oh, just another two hours, John and Darren." Yeah, but the problem is that they're the most enthusiastic listeners. Who, you know, the people that just like, "Oh my God, these guys they just go on and on and on." <laughs> you don't. They probably just don't bother telling us. That's right. And if you are one of those people, can you please uh, leave some feedback at the website? Yes, tattoo.com. We would be talking about Godzilla right now, but John hasn't seen it. Should I say anything about it at all? No. Or just leave it all? No, we've got to leave it all. You've got to leave it all. So many thoughts about it. (laughs) I really liked it. You're just going to have to keep it all in. Uh, I hope you don't burst. I might. And do you know what the movie should be called, or will that ruin it? That'll ruin it. It should actually be called Meet the Mutos. Yeah, okay. I have no idea what that means. Ah, you'll find out. But I presume it's those little Godzilla things. There's not little Godzilla things in it, and if I say any more, I'll ruin it for you. Um... Yeah, okay, wrap it up. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Um, Today is World... Ah, today, because... It's not going to go live, is it? Today is World Turtle Day. 
Yeah. So today, the 20, 23rd of May is World Turtle Day. So go out and do some turtle celebrating of some sort. If I'd known about it, there would be turtle stuff on Tetsu right now. Uh, the 21st of June, however, is World Giraffe Day. So the first ever World Giraffe Day will be celebrated around the world on 21st of June. And that, of course, is the longest day of the year, which is why they went, the longest day in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, which is why they went for it. Uh, despite being iconically African, the giraffe is largely understudied in the wild. How often have I heard that? That's seriously true. There's loads of animals where we know nothing about their wild behavior. Another one is hippos. And despite serious population declines, the giraffe remains low on the list of conservation priorities for many countries. You know, there are, there are supposed to be like eight forms of giraffe, and there's some of them that there aren't any in captivity. I believe that's the case for Thornycroft's giraffe in particular, actually. Okay, um, so then, if you want to listen to this podcast, you should go to tetzu.com on the internet. <laughs> Although, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Telling <laughs> listeners to the podcast where they can go to listen to the podcast. It's, it's a start. I've got to start somewhere. Uh, uh, there's a couple of... Yeah, there's a blog that blogs about Tetrapodzoology and covers the same sort of stuff that we... If you're interested, it's currently hosted at Scientific American. It's called Tetrapodzoology. There's a couple of sites that are sort of uh, kind of affiliated with us in a loose kind of friendly sense, but, you know, um, including Tetzoo Time, which is an Adventure Time-style parody produced by our good friends Alberta Claw and John Termel, and that's hosted at... Time.tetzoo.com. Time. <laughs> um, Ethan Kozak's Tetsu comic, which is online at comic slash tetsu.com. Comic.tetsu.com. <laughs> Recent editions, there's a Godzilla one, and there's slow, toilet sloths right now, which is hilarious. Um, I currently tweet at. <laughs> With Captain Solo in the cargo hold. <laughs> at Tetsu. Um, there's Tetsubot's World Facebook page. Please like it. Needs more likes. All important. Um, John and myself and our good friend Memo Kozman have published several books through our company, Irregular Books. All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in paleontology. All Your Yesterdays, which is kind of like a crowdsourced thing, which riffs off All Yesterdays. And The Cryptozoological Volume 2. These are available for more good digital retailers and the bad ones as well. And Cryptozoological Volume 2 is pretty much finished and probably published like tomorrow or something. Right? Mm, yeah, tomorrow. And tomorrow. tomorrow. Tetra Book 1 is still available. Book for TetsuCon before it's too late. Do you know the address for that, Darren? Uh, here we go. Here we go. Listen to this. Tetsu.com forward slash convention. Yes. Yes! <laughs> <Yeah>. Finally! <laughs> um... <laughs> What's the is it Mike the Fish who wrote the article the the, the pods, podcast transcripts for us? Yes, I just wanted to thank him again for wow his time and effort and energy. Oh my and god, I still haven't put those up, have I? I've really still haven't do... put those up. Yeah. So there you go. Sorry, so, yeah. sorry, Mike. I will. What would you do without me? Yeah. yeah. So well done, Mike. Um, and so if if anybody's, I don't know why, if any will be anyone would want to listen to want to read what we've done. But um, actual written word transcripts of the podcast, which I personally find useful because I want to know what I, I don't want to repeat myself all the time. Mm. I don't want to repeat myself all the time, but I do. I, I, uh, I hear there's a new tape here, Darren. Oh, the tape here. And there's a Tetrapod Zoology Redbubble Shop, the um, Monitor Lizard t-shirt, 
has sold literally a handful of um, copies, and I'm sure it will sell many more. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> okay. so yeah, there are actually two te- there are two Red Bubble shops. There's your shop and the podcast shop. Um, so very good. Uh, yeah, thousands of Red Bubble shops. You can't go to Red Bubble without falling over Tetsu merchandise everywhere. It's very popular. Wonder how many T-shirts we'll see at TetsuCon. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we've sold a few. I've got blood so... all over mine. I need a new one. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I've got a white one. I want a red one. You want a red one? Okay. Yeah. So if you bleed on it, <laughs> you can't yeah, tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to nag for donations again because we haven't ah. done that for a while. Yep. So the podcast keeps going because people donate. Cash for questions is great, but it doesn't really cover our time. So... Yeah, donate to the podcast. And the best way to donate is um, recurring donations. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. But a recurring donation can be really small. We don't, you know, we're not going <laughs> to feel bad. You shouldn't feel bad putting a dollar or a pound in that box as a recurring donation. That's great. Um, because we've got 2,000 listeners and so far about 26 people, excellent people, um, actually donate to the podcast. So, yes. Um, if you if you do donate to the podcast regularly, then you will be like part of quite an elite group. And I would say, if you laughed once during this podcast, you owe us either a pound or a dollar. So yeah, thank you very okay, much. Yeah. I, want, also, I want that money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and is that it? Yeah, I'm at johnconway.co. Links to stuff. I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and yeah, um, that's it. I think, isn't it? Screw you guys, I'm going home. Uh, yeah.